My name is Ruth Wedgwood. I'm a professor of international law at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. And I teach in the School of International uh, Advanced Studies, which means I teach some law students, but also a great many diplomats, military officers, uh, people who become foreign service officers. And in a way, my function there is to try to make the law reasonably intelligible to lay people, as well as lawyers. Uh, so I thought I'd talk today on this excellent series, which I'm very happy the United Nations is doing, about some problems that arise in the UN human rights system considered as a whole. And I thought I'd talk about three things. One is the new institution of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, which began in 1993, and what that office has entailed and could entail. And secondly, the new Human Rights Council, which sits in Geneva. I don't myself sit on the council, but because I sit on a sister body, I am quite cognizant of their performance. And third, I thought I would talk about the relationship of the UN human rights system as a whole to regional systems, which is an important kind of uh, architecture and search for who is most competent to do a particular function. My own intense involvement in the UN human rights world began in, 19, in uh, 2003, when I began to serve on the UN treaty body of experts that administers the covenant on civil and political rights. And I now leave home nine weeks a year. My kid and spouse don't necessarily like it, but uh, they understand why, to sit in New York and Geneva uh, working on country reports, working on individual cases that have to do with potential violations of the covenant on civil and political rights. So I thought today I would talk not about my own committee, which I've spoken to on a different occasion, but the work of my sisters and brothers, if you will, the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Human Rights Council and the regional bodies. So let me start with the Human Rights, the High Commissioner for Human Rights. That's an organ that was begun in 1993. Um, there had already been a High Commissioner for Refugees. I'm sure you're all familiar with the important work that the United Nations does in trying to mitigate the enormous hardships that refugees face when they're forced across borders and internally displaced persons as well, when they're displaced by war or uh, political repression or by uh, um, ecological catastrophe. So there'd been a high commissioner for refugees. And it occurred to someone, why shouldn't there be a high commissioner for human rights? High commissioner, by the way, is a very odd title. It, in a sense, uh, dates from the days of colonialism when you were the high commissioner of India. Or, but um, it is a dip diplomatic talk, if you will, for somebody who's taken to be a senior level person, typically at the rank of an undersecretary general, meant to be a role model, a prominent voice to have a kind of declaratory moral authority on issues, as well as an administrator. So the idea of this High Commissioner for Human Rights was put into practice in 1993. A variety of people have held the office. Some of the most prominent to the public name would be Mary Robinson, who had been President of Ireland, Sergio Vera de Millo, who had been uh, uh, a prominent uh, figure in the UN Secretariat on Humanitarian Work, and most lately, Louise Arbour, who had been a 
criminal prosecutor on the UN tribunal that tried the war crimes that arose in the course of, of the civil conflict in Yugoslavia. And they each brought something different to the job. Um, the, the High Commissioner's office is actually not well defined. Uh, he or she sits as in the, I suppose, the biggest office in Pally Wilson on Lake Geneva, Lake Lumin, in the Swiss town of Geneva, um, with some administrative responsibilities. But in fact, it's really very much a moral role, legal role as a figurehead, to call attention to crisis areas, to exhort governments to do the right things, but to do it in an effective way. And, and for that reason, I think the High Commissioner is faced with many of the dilemmas that even more obscure treaty experts, like myself, uh, face in their own interpretive work. Um, I'll give you a number of examples. If a civil war breaks out with shelling on both sides, how should you handle it? It's not your job as such to tell them that they can't go to war. That's the job of the Security Council under Article 2.4 and Article 39, Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. So you're not there to shut down the war, but you are there to make sure that the human rights of people who are affected by the war are taken into account. Should you, on the opening of the war, first day, issue a press release to remind the parties that they may bear personal criminal liability for violations of the law of armed conflict? Or will that seem too tendentious? Will that seem too much like you're taking sides if one party, in fact, is somehow more immediately in the foreground? Uh, if you have a, a crisis in which, or an ongoing crisis, say region of the country, or region of the globe, excuse me, in which the rights of women aren't taken very seriously, how do you interact with the state's parties to uh, woo them to virtue, if you will, or woo them to the norms of human rights, and yet not appear to be a condemning a civilization or a culture or a customary way of doing things, not disrespecting any of those. So it, it, it's, a, it's a role in which having a kind of tuneful ear, a musical sense, some would say what diplomats do when they're doing good jobs. Uh, a diplomat for human rights, uh, I think is essential to the job. If you're too declamatory, if you wag your finger at everybody every time on everything, they begin to dismiss you and they turn the volume down. So I think it's a, a job is very hard to do well. You have to pick and choose. You have to know how to be effective. You have to do what's possible. Um, in, in a way, the office I would most liken to it in the UN system is a wonderful man, Peter Piot, who was a, uh, a Belgian pediatrician who took the job of HIV AIDS. And Peter Piot's job was to go around the world and talk to heads of state about the problems of AIDS and HIV and persuade them that there was no shame or embarrassment in being frank about the problem and trying to remedy it and put best practices into place. And you, know, you can wag your finger, finger and be perfectly ineffective. And yet uh, you do want to push where you can, but in a way that doesn't so engage the sense of nationalism or defensiveness of a country or a culture that you are self-defeating. Um, many countries will tell you that one of their concerns about human rights as a vocation internationally 
is that it may be kind of a victor and defeated, uh, I told you so, um, declamatory exercise. I remember at Yale we had, uh, when I was teaching there, uh, Mr. Dayal, who had been head of the Indian Human Rights Commission, come to speak to us. And he said, look, if, if, if you do everything in the form of gotcha, I don't think he used quite that word, but, or, or litigation, you know, plaintiff and defendant. In a great many countries, they'll say, we don't privately like this practice, but we're not going to be told what to do by an accusatory colonial state. So the High Commissioner, I think, has to be sensitive to those issues of pride and nationalism and self-possession, independence, and try to do this job of critique in a way that's um, effective and not seeking headlines for their own sake, but just trying to really uh, work even within cultures. Also, the High Commissioner is often faced with contentious issues about whether all human rights are equal, which comes first. There was, as you may have heard on other lectures, uh, the issue that arose in the Vienna Conference about whether development rights, economic and social rights come first, or civil and political rights come first? And I think the correct answer is you have to be attentive to all of them. But some countries have tried to argue that you can't expect us to have free speech or free press until we've finished getting rich. And certainly that is a position I would choose to reject. Uh, you can be rich and free. <laughs> uh, it's hard to make the case that repression is necessary to development. But at the same time, uh, countries that are poor, I think, often may take the view that simply being criticized on their governance practices without having some cognizance of the resource limitations that they face, the difficulties that they face, uh, are, uh, is, 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 is inappropriate. That, I mean, to have a good police department, you have to have well-trained officers, and well-trained officers cost money. So that uh, the high commissioner has to be aware, I think, that if they simply take a template from European law or North American law and say, we demand that the exact uh, rulings of the European Court of Human Rights be observed by all countries in Asia and Africa, because I am translating them into international norms, that would be resisted. You have to have some, some cognizance of the different audiences that you, you, you treat with. Um, there's been an issue about whether a human rights high commissioner should actually try to get up inside the legal process of a particular country. The most recent High Commissioner filed so-called amicus briefs, uh, friend of the court briefs, in litigation in some countries uh, before their constitutional courts or Supreme Courts. That engaged a bit of chatter uh, as to whether that was the right way to address countries. Countries are more typically used to um, being spoken to through their delegations or heads of state and not having visits that go directly to judges. Um, so that's, a, I think, a, a, a practice that has, is more recent. It's under debate among the friendly community that wants to have an effective uh, human rights uh, process. Um, there's an issue of coordination. Uh, I will not name names, but I was told funny tales out of school about one high commissioner for human rights and one high commissioner for refugees, who often would stumble over each other. One was planning a visit, and the other would immediately plan a visit to the same country. And the first person's visit would get canceled. Or 
High Commissioner for Refugees might be planning to visit an area where there was a real problem of displaced persons and refugee flows. And if that very week, that very day, a High Commissioner for Human Rights denounced that country for human rights violations, you discover that heads of state often think of there being one United Nations. And if you're not cognizant of the agenda of your colleagues, uh, you can end up defeating the larger purpose. So you have to think, I think, of complementary work where high commissioners would cooperate. <laughs> um, I think there's, oh, I, 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 this is a personal view of mine, so you, as listeners, you're certainly free to disagree. I worry also about the incentive system in the UN that oftentimes people who take high-level jobs have another higher job in mind later. And you certainly don't want people discharging a role like High Commissioner for Human Rights with any expectation or desire they would ever do anything else in the UN system because it's a job in which if you do it honestly, you can't avoid perturbing, annoying, at least irritating some governments so that you should neither be playing to the bleachers and trying to be more critical than is warranted, nor should you be um, softening your criticism because you want that country's vote later on for another office that you might seek. So I, I don't think high commissioners should ever seek to be secretary general or deputy secretary general. I think this should be, I, I'm, I'm a fall on your sword person. If you know God gives you something that's truly worthy to do, you do it with integrity and with the expectation that's your primary vocation in your professional life. Now a current issue for the high commissioner is how to relate to the other machinery of the human rights system. And I, I'll just change my focus, if I may, to the Human Rights Council. This is a new body that was put in place uh, in the last year of Kofi Annan's term as Secretary General. It replaced the old Human Rights Commission. It has 47 members. It's elected by the General Assembly. It's done in practice through regional voting. Um, it in its creation sought to be less political in a sort of um, obvious way than the Human Rights Commission had been. Uh, engages in a review of every member state of the UN through the so-called so universal periodic review. But it's made up of delegations of diplomats and therefore it is almost unavoidably more political than the technical processes of treaty bodies expert committees. Um, and at times you'll discover, it's no surprise to any blushing bride, that um, countries have favorites and countries have adversaries. So you'll discover that at times, um, this is much more true in the Cold War, but it, it's true even now, that members of one regional group will go a little softer on their fellow regionalists and maybe a little harder on a different country. Uh, there's also been the common perception that um, there is a focus on one country of the world, and I'll name its name because it's simply a fat matter of fact, Israel, uh, that has been consumed a disproportionate amount of the Human Rights Council's time and at times has inspired a fairly um, heated rhetoric. So one issue for the High Commissioner is what the relationship of her office should be to the Human Rights Council. Should she try to steer the politics of the council? Should she see herself as governed by the council? 
Um, is she obliged to abide by the substantive views of the council? And in real life, a lawyer would say you work it out practically in a quiet and, 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 and productive way. But there will be times when the Human Rights Council may take a view that to a high commissioner is anathema, and vice versa. And how, how do you do that? High commissioners have also been lately faced with a view by some members of the Human Rights Council that the council should control the high commissioner. And at least heretofore, the high commissioner's office has resisted that. They're two independent offices. They often meet together, but neither works for the other. Both the, high, the council is a political body elected by the member states. The high commissioner is appointed by the secretary general. Neither is superordinate. But there is, not surprisingly in the, in the public mind and in the views of member states, a great confusion on how these separate organs fit together. And I think the high commissioners have been trying to work that out to figure out how they can maintain their independence um, and yet have a useful conversational influence on the Human Rights uh, Council. Um, Human Rights High Commissioner also has to worry about capacity building in member countries. And I think usefully in recent years, there's been more emphasis on spending some money, not simply on making recommendations, but helping countries implement those by having people on the ground who can make practical suggestions in poorer countries on ways to implement uh, some of the highfalutin recommendations that the United Nations may make, capacity building, training for judges, for prosecutors, for defense counsel, for prison wardens. And many of the publications that now are put out by the High Commissioner's Office have to do with very practical training manuals uh, for how to be a good prison guard or how to be a good policeman, um, minimum standards for uh, jail cells for people who are imprisoned, and just to get it down to brass tacks in an operationalized way. Um, but that said, I think it's a very difficult job. I'm not sure anybody has yet figured out the secret of perfect performance. Um, you have to be a good administrator because you have quite a large staff. You have the difficulty that many of, of your funds are in fact given by voluntary donations by the states. So you both uh, want to be attentive to any earmarking of monies but not be beholden to anybody in the discharge of your duties. Um, and I do think that, and here I'll sound perhaps a bit uh, un-American or non-American, that sometimes less is more and a quiet demeanor uh, can uh, uh, be effective. Once upon a time I took my class here to the UN to see Buchos Ghali and we wanted to discuss the preventive diplomacy that the Secretary General performed and Buchos Ghali was a very funny and elegant man and he said if I told you about it it wouldn't be private diplomacy and it therefore wouldn't be effective. I can't tell you the names of the two heads of state in Asia, Africa or Europe whom I just spoke to. And so too here I think sometimes a high commissioner can actually potentially be as effective by giving private counsel as taking to the airways. This should not be a job of Hollywood stars. It should be a job of you know skilled diplomats, lawyers, human rights experts, but people who want to have impact on the ground by whatever m mode that would work. Um, let me talk a little bit about the Human Rights Council. I've, I've mentioned it already, elected by the General Assembly. Um, 
my concern, this is going to be my own perhaps idiosyncratic view, but that's why I'm here, uh, it's an on-the-ground view, is that the greatest problem of the UN system as a whole, and it affects the Human Rights Council as well, is the phenomenon of block voting. When I first came to the UN f for long hours in my job as a treaty expert, and you wander the halls, getting a cup of coffee, seeing what meetings might be amusing to go to, the fly on the wall. And I began to notice that I wasn't free to go to many meetings. Many meetings were closed, even for observers. I couldn't go to a meeting of the Group of 77. I couldn't go to a meeting of the uh, Conference of the, uh, the Organization of Islamic uh, Conferences. I couldn't go to a meeting of the Western European and others group. I couldn't go to a meeting of GRULAC, uh, this combination of Latin American and North American. I uh, couldn't go to JUSCANS, all these funny acronyms, uh, which was the Japan plus most of the members of the Western European and North American group. These are closed meetings. And they yet tend to be meetings in which postures on voting are decided. And one of my greatest shocks, I think, when I first began to really understand the UN as a political system, not at the level of high theory, not Heidegger, not what it says on paper, but how it works, is that typically, certainly in the General Assembly, voting is done by blocks. There's no such thing as a secret ballot in the General Assembly. So even if a small country that happened to belong to the Western European and others group, WEOG, W-E-O-G, or that belong to the group of 77, which is really a group of 132, or that belong to the non-aligned movement, or belong to the OIC, even if a particular country preferred to vote otherwise, they couldn't do it without either conspicuously breaking consensus and calling for a tally name by name. There's no such thing as a secret ballot in the rules of the General Assembly, which means I can't dissent from my regional group without possible consequences. And this regional group, I don't mean to be making too much of this, but if you think about old New York City politics and you go to your clubhouse in the Bronx because you want a job for your cousin and you'd like your street lamp fixed and you'd like your, your, your kid's public school to have a, a new roof, you might go to your clubhouse for all those things. And if you fall out with your clubhouse, you might not get any of those. And so to here, if you broke consensus and demanded a voice vote and then conspicuously embarrassed your group by voting against them on an issue about which some of the major countries in the group felt keenly, it has consequences. So what you discover in UN voting, to my great chagrin and sorrow, not so much in human rights but generally, is a huge conformism that people will caucus in their group, one or two countries with intense preferences will tend to lead the discussion. In the old days, in the Cold War, there'd be whips for the Soviet Union and whips for the, uh, uh, the capitalist countries, countries that would take the lead in these conversations, even if they were from the South. Now the Cold War is over, thankfully. But you still have countries that have intense preferences on particular issues. And it, 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 it discourages the kind of log rolling and floating, changing majorities that I think are the key to democracy and to a, a fluid, productive politics.
So if I could change anything in this system, it would be to question how regional groups operate. Not that there aren't common interests. If you're a poor country, you may have particular views on trades. You may have trade. You may have views on the Doha round. You want your farm products to be for sale in North America and Europe. Um, so you may have interests in common that should be expressed, but not all your interests are the same. And I, I think it would be, behoove this institution to think about how to return to a kind of more universal dialogue, especially on human rights. Because what I find concerning is if in the Human Rights Council in Geneva, which is meant to be a reform from the, of the old commission, it's meant to be a flight from politics. It's meant to be an attempt to look at countries on the merits. To the extent that you see patterns of conformist voting, that all countries from a particular continent are voting together, all countries from a particular civilizational background are voting together, that's troublesome to me. It's troublesome if a diplomat comes up to you and says, you know I had to say that, but we don't really mean it. We just had to do it. That's not good. I mean, I, re I really, maybe it's because I'm a lawyer, because I have a vaguely quasi-judicial function on the Human Rights Committee, just would hope that there would be space and room for countries to take dissident views without paying the consequences. And to that, you may want a secret ballot in UN organs, and you may want a fundamental conversation about the role of regionalism, because you do discover time and again that there's a false regional solidarity. I mean, cures should come from within, and better that a critique of the performance of an African country or a European country or an Asian country come from their regions, from leaders they consider to be friends and neighbors, than that have come from far away. And yet with regional organization in the UN, that rarely happens. So part of my concern and disappointment at how the Human Rights Council operates so far is that it shows these same regional, regional patterns of, of, of voting, which I think is may have been appreciated by social scientists at one point who looked for correlations and chi-square distributions of voting patterns, but it's not understood in its basic Chicago politics sense that you're not free to vote as you wish if your country beholden to a regional group. And that's issue number one for me. Um, it's also true that there's a difficult question pending on how to have the council undertake its reviews without undermining the work of the expert treaty bodies and without rehearsing the long uh, story of the treaty bodies. These are groups of um, retired academics or diplomats or judges who meet in Geneva, in New York, to try to make specific recommendations on rights of the child, racial discrimination, women's rights, handicapped migrant workers, civil and political rights, economic and social rights. And it's those treaty bodies are a relatively apolitical process. So one of the concerns that's felt by many people involved in it is that you don't want to have the, the, the bite, the, the, the punch, the legal force of those recommendations be undermined by a human rights council process that may be, may be more political. To put it in terms of a familiar television advertisement, you don't want the kid to come home and say, look mom, no cavities, dentist says I have a clean bill of health, when in fact all these other dentists 
had serious concerns about prison violence or police brutality or arbitrary detention. And therefore, one worries that the process of regional co accommodation in the Human Rights Council could not only undermine their own review process, but the impact and punch of uh, the expert treaty bodies as well. And I'm not sure that's something that was thought about, frankly, when, when uh, the Tr Human Rights Council was set up. As one friend of mine observed, many of the people who made the recommendations on the council uh, were not aware, frankly, of how the human rights machinery was actually structured um, and, and therefore may have been unaware of these impacts. One idea that's floating around in Geneva and New York as a possibility is the thought of actually expanding the Human Rights Council to have it be all-inclusive, to have all countries um, sit on it. Uh, that might not uh, abolish regionalism, but it might dilute some of its more uh, conspicuous uh, effects. Um, I should also n note in passing the important role of special rapporteurs uh, on the Human Rights Council. These are people who are given thematic mandates or country-specific mandates uh, to go look at extrajudicial ex ex executions, to go look at the problems of torture, to go look at the problems of disappearances, um, or to go look at particular countries. There have been countries-specific mandates in the past, for example, for Belarus, for Cuba, and other countries. Um, and what one discovers is that in the renewal of the mandates of those special rapporteurs, um, at times politics does come into play. Vulgar politics, I'll hasten to say. And I, I have a Machiavellian th theorem. You have to be, in a sense, uh, I won't say wicked to do good, but you have to understand the game to be virtuous, to make sure that the right result is reached for the right reason. Um, so uh, in instances in which, uh, without naming names, at least two country-specific mandates were abolished at a time when I think most countries would have thought that the mission was not yet complete, that that was a problematic outcome for the Human Rights Council, that there should be a... I mean, you want, in, you want responsible people, you want people who don't take this as a license to... Uh, go way off the map, but still uh, it's important that the rapporteurs be independent from the micropolitics of the Human Rights Council. Um, let me just say finally something about regional human rights systems and what I see as our relationship to those in the UN. As you know, um, the Europe very shortly after World War II drafted its European Convention on Human Rights, which was enforced through a commission and through a court. So too in the Americas, there's the Inter-American Commission and court. Um, some of the norms are phrased a bit differently from UN treaties. So far, there has been less institutional development in Africa. Uh, the, there's a new attempt to create an African Court of Human Rights, which is being championed by an Algerian friend of mine, Fatsa Werguez which I hope succeeds, which might have a, a docket of cases that could be brought to the court in the first instance. And there's a fledgling ASEAN Human Rights Commission. But it does seem to me, just almost logically, that what the UN should try to do is be complementary 
in many ways to the regional bodies. And if you have the, and this may be my idiosyncratic view, so take it for what it's worth, the view of a North American. Um, but insofar as Europe has scrubbed various issues fairly well through the European Court of Human Rights, query if that's the first priority for the UN to reiterate. Query if we should be seeking to follow European case law. Um, same for the Inter-American Commission. Um, and it seems to me that, this is my personal view, that a lot of what we should try to be doing is to be useful, not patronizing, not condescending, but useful to Africa and Asia because their human rights um, mechanisms are less fully developed. And therefore to be looking for business, to be really throwing out seed corn, to be educating judges and lawyers and human rights groups about the possibilities of remedies through U UN, uh, UN uh, mechanisms. So too, I, I don't want us to become the creature of any region's particular human rights, human rights jurisprudence. Uh, the fact that the European court did something doesn't mean we should do it. We have our own treaty. Um, our countries have their own concerns. Solutions that may be appropriate for a country with a GDP of uh, 33,000 euros, that's a little high, make it 13,000 euros a year, may not be feasible in a country that is poor. So I think it's incumbent on us to try to think about our clientele, if you will, and, and ways that we can be most useful in making this a, an interactive system, a holistic system. There are times when we can learn new lessons from regional treaties and regional bodies. If you look at the African uh, Refugee Convention, for example, they have a much broader account of who is refugee than the UN system does. In the UN system under the 1951 convention, you have to be fleeing from political persecution. In the African system, if you're fleeing from economic or ecological catastrophe, you could be a refugee. And one shouldn't suppose that uh, the first world invented at all. There really may be important lessons to be learned about group rights, about uh, the exigencies of what it means to live as a poor person uh, that can be gleaned from some of the African instruments and if they develop more of the Asian instruments. Um, and too often I think we see the UN simply as being an extension of North America and Europe, which is, which is a mistake. Um, and therefore I have made it my business to try to encourage people I know in the academy and diplomacy in Asia and Africa to think about taking a more active part in these organs. Um, certainly in, I'm straying a bit off topic here so forgive me, but in the case of the expert bodies, I would love to see a trust fund from the Secretary General or the High Commissioner that would permit poorer governments to run their candidates for those bodies and help uh, uh, subsidize their participation so that we'd have a vo set of voices that wasn't just commonwealth countries uh, or uh, first world countries. I, I, I just worry that we should not be seen as um, some kind of strange moral continuation of colonialism. Clearly the human rights norms are not matters of choice, they are matters of imper imperative duty, but who says it is important at the time. If someone who knows Sharia is the one who remonstrates with a country about discrimination and in the inheritance rights of women, 
or speaks in Arabic to an Arabic country about the inheritance rights of women, it has an impact that's different than if you're lectured to in French or English or Spanish uh, by a former colonial power. So in that sense, I think we have to be very cognizant of taking account of the pride and the ingenuity and imaginativeness and the institutional developments of all the regional systems as well as the more well-established systems that the UN has put in place. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I look forward to viewing all the other lectures that you have had the benefit of seeing. Thank you. <laughs>